For 50 years, most people believed the Necronomicon, an ancient grimoire written by the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred in the year 700, was imaginary. That is, until a writer, using only the name Simon, published what he claimed to be a translation of the text in 1977. How could a book of spells meant to invoke interdimensional space deities or raise otherworldly destructors from the depths of the sea based on a complex mythos that seemed to have been the invention of a small circle of weird fiction writers led by H.P. Lovecraft, how could such a fantastical book have any basis in reality? If there really was a Necronomicon written in 700, well, how did Lovecraft know about it? And if there wasn't, why would Simon claim that the book was an authentic translation of a real ancient grimoire? Today on Occult Confessions, we explore the mystery behind Simon's infamous Necronomicon. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am joined this day by... Both the Literal sisters, a winning combination, I think our listeners agree. Brie Literal, our metallurgic prophet. Hey guys. And Olivia, our grand master of the order. Hello. Hello. We members the members of the, of the secret, secret order, order of, of alchemical, alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling, telling of the history of the occult as far as, far as, we, as we know it. All right, then. Let's get into this. Uh, Well, Olivia, let's do the plugs. Plug, plug, plug. Here's the thing about the plugs. Uh, We are no longer able to do patrons, so uh, we're sort of uh, (laughs) plugging into the void right now. Uh, That's only because we're pre-recorded for the summer, so this episode was recorded a couple months before you're hearing it. Uh, We do want to remind you, though, to join Patreon, since we don't have the opportunity of sharing the names of the lovely people who have joined Patreon. Please hop on. uh, We're adding hours of content uh, all the time, and there are hours of content, many, many, many hours of content at this point. Episodes by both Bree and Olivia on the channel, and both Bree and Olivia are working on new Patreon episodes for later in the year. All right. Boo. Boo. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, I think it's fair to say at this point in the year that uh, Darkpool is coming back. For those of you who were into that, yes, we uh, have resumed work on Darkpool and uh, it will be out for the fall. So something to look forward to. Buy a t-shirt. There, that's three plugs. Close them up. Plug, plug, plug. Delightful. Okay, let's get into some Simon Necronomicon, shall we? Now, uh, Olivia, you know your your Lovecraft pretty well. Bree, how are you on your Lovecraft? I do not. I well, you, you um, were in the Cthulhu I show. I literally know what is limited to what you wrote on that <laughs> script and what I looked up on Wikipedia about Cthulhu. But question. Wait, yes. it's too early for a question. You, no, it's you not. Can ask we can Brianna question how she feels. All right, we'll do it. Then you can, if you have a question, I'm happy to address it. I'm probably going to forget it, to be totally <laughs> honest. But it's all right. Totally ask fun. it right now. Ask it right away. Then we'll get to Brie. Is so the only like necro necro ne- shit necronomicon. Necronomicon. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't say it. Um, <laughs> the only like I only know it from Evil Dead. Is it supposed to be the same thing? Like in Evil Dead, is it like supposed to be Lovecraftian? Is that yeah? They would the... have stolen that from. It raises the dead. Like yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what that they were doing. the same. That's what they got the Necronomicon from. A lot of things actually do that. Uh, okay, which is weird. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if they ever. Maybe they like throw it to like Lovecraft at one point or reference it, but I missed it. But it's been a while. I don't know I've if seen... they do. I didn't see the remake because it looked like trash, oh, yeah. but. <laughs> well, Lovecraft would not be offended because Lovecraft was comfortable with people taking his creatures and his creations and his ideas and using them in their own stuff. He encouraged that among this like circle of writers that he worked with on weird fiction. So he wouldn't have minded. Yeah, Cabin in the Woods did the same thing, right? Pretty much. But yeah. they pretty much... I think they were directly nodding yeah, to Lovecraft, they're, probably. They're like, here's the old gods, like straight up. So I don't yep. know. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I know about it. <laughs> Bree, what do you know? Um, I generally, in very, very generally, know what the Necronomicon is. I know 
that it's used in a lot of pop culture stuff, just like either as a throw to Lovecraft or just because people know it exists. And then also like a little bit about like Lovecraft kind of ish, like creepy stuff before he like really got into writing and like things that kind of inspired him to write some of the stuff he wrote. What do you mean? Like uh, his various fears and phobias? That and like, I I keep hearing this. Um, I haven't actually looked into it more, but like, I forget what Lovecraft called them, but he actually used them in his stories, like of these little beings that like he actually saw and like he says came to him. Oh, interesting that he had his own yeah. paranormal experience. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I forget what they're actually called, but he nods to them in um, some of his stories. I'm pretty sure I could be off base, but I'm. this is what I've heard. We're not going to get into this much. So what we can we can say it right now. Lovecraft was a disturbed man. Mm. <laughs> pretty, fa- pretty disturbed. He, uh, I think... You know, he hated people. <laughs> mm. He he liked certain people, I guess. Uh, but for the most part, he just hated everyone. He hated foreigners and he hated people of different races. And he, he didn't get along with his wife. And he just didn't like people very much. But boy, could he write. Yeah, I think that's part of why the work is so terrifying, is that he went mm. through life with this sort of constant phobia of everyone. You know, the world was strange to him. The Necronomicon was a central element of H.P. Lovecraft's so-called Cthulhu mythos. In his various weird fiction horror stories and novellas, Lovecraft drew on a cohesive set of ancient deities, what we'd call an alternative uh, universe today, or like world building. Uh, Is that what that's called? An alternate universe, like the Marvel universe or Star Wars? Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Lovecraft I sort of invents there, this idea. I guess they're an English. Yeah, I guess term it would be an, yeah, I don't know. an alternate universe. Yeah, not in the. Yeah, it's a it's an AU. It's an alternate universe. There you go, but yeah, not in the physics sense of the word. In a in a literary sense. Lovecraft encouraged other writers in his circle to expand on this universe in their own stories, as we mentioned. So he liked other folks to take his stuff and go ahead and play with it and make it their own. For listeners who are not especially familiar with Lovecraft's work, there are essentially two groups of otherworldly beings who interact with his human characters. Technically three groups, but uh, we won't worry. We're we're only going to worry about two of them today. There are the outer gods who reside elsewhere in the universe, meaning not on Earth, uh, arguably outside of our material dimension itself. These are ruled over by the blind idiot god Azatoth, whose dream is reality as we know it. He sits at the center of chaos, where he's attended by the sound of a thin, monotonous piping at all times. The second group is the great old ones, gods who once ruled the earth but have since fallen into a deep sleep. His most famous creation is, of course, Cthulhu, a giant being with a cuddle head, cuttlefish head that sleeps under an island in the middle of the ocean. Cthulhu is not one of the outer gods, but a great old one. In his story, The Call of Cthulhu, people across the planet begin to have strange dreams of a monster awakening, and a ship happens across the monster's island as Cthulhu awakens. By ramming Cthulhu, a sailor causes him to disperse and return to his underground home, leaving the reader to wonder, for how long we have staved off apocalypse. So the great old ones do visit Earth and do things on Earth, and maybe they're even buried in the Earth, but the outer gods, they've got their own space somewhere. So far, so good? Yes. The Necronomicon is also known as Al-Azif. Theoretically, I guess it's Arab name, which is a name referring to the nocturnal howling of demons. That's pretty metal rock. That seems more fun. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. That would be a long title to a book, wouldn't it? The the nocturnal howling of demons. It's like my next band name. Say that better than ne ne necronomicon. You make a fair point. Nocturnal howling of demons. (laughs) The N H O D. The the N Hod. N Hod. Anyway, this book articulates the method of its author's worship of both the outer gods and the great old ones. It contains spells for invoking and interacting with these beings. Lovecraft says that the text was translated into Greek by Theodorus Philetus and then into Latin by Oleus Wormius. Philetus is made up. Maybe it's a pun on fellatio. I don't know. But, mm. but Wormius is a real person whose actual name was Ol Worm. 
Wormius. Yeah, so Olas Wormius oh is a name he Olas made up. Olas Wormius? Yeah, so that was the name he made up. But the re- <laughs> the guy's real name was Ole Worm. That's what the name he was born with. I I don't know which one I I like more. Yeah, so he Latinized his name to Oleus Wormius because he thought it sounded fancier than Ole Worm. I guess it does. He's got a point. He's a real guy. So, uh, and I probably, knowing what I know about Lovecraft, he probably just liked the sound of his name because Wormius (laughs) was a doctor and a professor at the University of Copenhagen in the 17th century, uh, but he was not an occultist of any kind. So in a way, the existence of Wormius helps the case that, uh, you know, the Necronomicon might be real because Lovecraft actually likes to intersperse real history into his fiction. So maybe the Necronomicon is some of that real history. Uh, but but again, Old Worm is sort of out of left field because he doesn't seem to have anything to do with the occult. It's just a doctor with a cool name or weird name. The Necronomicon was also translated into English by John D. John D is also a real person who actually does have an occult reputation. As many of our listeners know, Lovecraft says there was no extant copies of the Arabic text, but there are fragments of D's text and many copies of the Latin scattered in rare book rooms and libraries in America and Europe. There is also apparently one copy of the Greek text in the hands of an artist named R.U. Pickman, a regular character in Lovecraft's fiction. So that's what Lovecraft has to say about his his book, which I, to Lovecraft is is made up. It's a fictional book, and he gets to you know toss in old worm and things that make him laugh. Yeah. There are, of course, no Latin copies of the book at Harvard or Paris. <laughs> so <laughs> I say that because Lovecraft claims that there are. It's an important feature of the Dunwich Horror that there is a copy at Harvard uh, and also at his fictional Miskatonic uh, University. So there is no Miskatonic University. There is no Necronomicon at Harvard. There is no Necronomicon at Paris. People have looked. They have not found it. Uh, it is also not cataloged among John Dee's projects or papers. If you remember from the D episode, Dee's library was uh, basically vandalized. So theoretically, the book could have been carried off. But, uh, you know, you know, it's just convenient for Lovecraft to toss the name in. In one of his letters, Lovecraft actually worried whether anyone would waste time pursuing the Necronomicon as if it were real. Although he believed all weird fiction resembled a kind of hoax, he was adamant that the reader should understand that the writer had invented this universe and that no aspect of it was real. I'm quoting him here. He said, I am opposed to serious hoaxes since they really confuse and retard the sincere student of folklore. I feel quite guilty every time I hear of someone's having spent valuable time looking up the Necronomicon at public libraries. (laughs) Uh, he's a man ahead of his time here. He, he's concerned about conspiracy theory before it's cool to be concerned about conspiracy theory before podcasts. Lovecraft may have toyed with the idea of writing a Necronomicon himself. So sitting down and banging it out. But scholar John Engel gives a few reasons why Lovecraft never bothered to write his own Necronomicon first. If he fixed the text, then he couldn't invent things into it as he needed in his stories. Right? <laughs> yeah that makes sense you know like he's writing a story and he's like oh the necronomicon would work perfect here if there's like a chapter in it about a donkey who eats squids and then i'll just do that but he can't do that if he writes the whole text and publishes (laughs) it he can't add that chapter and he really needed that whole donkey thing to complete the there's no stories like that in lovecraft i wish (laughs) (laughs) I, I picture the Dunwich R as a kind of like flopping around invisible spaghetti monster. So I feel like, yeah, there's that. Yeah. Yeah. Similarly, his collaborators uh, couldn't have just used the Necronomicon however they liked. So Lovecraft wanted them, you know, sort of like you guys are talking about with uh, what is it? Evil Dead and these other series. Lovecraft would have been sort of thrilled by this. Uh, But if he had fixed the text, then it couldn't so easily be appropriated by these other fictional worlds. Makes sense. You keep adding to the lore. More people can add to the lore, I guess. It's more about that world building, that uh, alternate, that AU, than about fixing a text. Because he was way dead (laughs) by the time. Oh, yeah. You know, so that kind (laughs) of says something. 
Lovecraft also, this is fun, He kind of a humble guy. He worried that he lacked the energy and the ingenuity to pull it off. He thought he'd get bored with it and quit. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> we can relate. In any case, the Necronomicon was firmly part of Lovecraft's fictional alternate universe. That is, until 1977, when a man named Simon yanked it out of the fictional world and into the real world when he claimed to have translated a Greek copy of the Necronomicon into English. As it turned out, according to Simon, the Mad Arab's text was not a guide to the worship of ancient and horrific space gods, but rather Sumerian gods. Hmm. Still, says Simon, it is a truly horrific and dangerous work that should be approached with tremendous caution. So don't just go buy it for 99 cents off the bargain bin although you can buy it that way it was published in paperback that's how i read it since its publication various investigators have questioned the authenticity of simon's necronomicon the idea that a book everyone believed had been imagined by a man that many regard as the second coming of edgar Allan poe that 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 such a book should actually exist was and still is a whole hell of a lot to accept it's like finding out that the telltale heart really is beating under a house somewhere <laughs> or, or that there's a raven out there knocking on people's chamber doors. I hope so. <laughs> Many wanted to believe in the book, which drove sales and prompted the production of, as I mentioned, a mass market paperback. But people like me, except older than me, because this was the 1970s, wondered whether there was any way to reasonably accept this book as a genuine ancient text dating back to the year 700 or before. Now, before digging into Simon, I also want to note that the Simon Necronomicon is not the only Necronomicon to surface in the 1970s. It's just a caveat before we get into the book. Oh. That makes you sad? No, I just said, oh. Oh, surprise. There's more than one. What is it about the 70s where they suddenly popped up? Oh, you could tell me that, Olivia, don't you think? I, the 70s. I guess, Come on. right? But Yeah, it's that it's that horror movies are you go in bonkers and haunted houses and so anyhow, Exorcist was I think 73, 74. Yeah. So, I mean, the culture, we're, we're also going to get into in a second that the culture of occultism is taking off in the 70s in America. So it's just this like hotbed scene. So this is a good time. If you're going to write a Necronomicon, this is the time to do it. Yeah, I was going to say, LeVay, he opened his church in like, what, the late 60s? So that kind of matches right. up. Right. And, you know, if we think about our conspiracy episodes, Johnny Todd and those characters, a lot of them get their start in the 70s complaining or I guess, you know, rabble rousing over the fear of an occult menace, a witch cult coming for all of our throats. Mm. So in 1978, George Hayes produced his own version with an introduction by Colin Wilson and a significant contribution uh, if the book was not ghostwritten by Robert Turner. Uh, This far less famous Necronomicon was actually much more faithful to its Lovecraft source material. And in 1973, a short pamphlet called Al-Azif, after the fictional writer of the Necronomicon surfaced, written in simulated Syrian script. Say that five times fast. In short, Simon did not invent, nor did he monopolize the concept of a Necronomicon, but he was the most commercially successful at it. And the Simon Necronomicon is usually what people think of when we talk about the Necronomicon as a real grimoire. So let's do Simon, shall we? In 2006, 30 years after the publication of the Necronomicon, Simon published a book called Dead Names, in which he told the story of how he'd come to possess and translate the text of the Necronomicon. His account was based on a series of real-life events. On the 16th of March, 1973, two Eastern Orthodox monks, Michael Huback and Stephen Chapo, were arrested for the theft and desecration of a bunch of old, rare books. Event number one. This is about to get weird, so hang with me. There was also the formation of the Slavonic Orthodox Church by William Andrew Prosky and occult author Peter Lavenda, who were then teenagers having met at Columbia High School in the Bronx neighborhood of New York City in the late 1960s. Prasky and Lavenda split, uh, with Lavenda going to work at the Warlock Shop in Brooklyn Heights for a man named Herman Slater, who was a fairly prominent player in America's occult renaissance in the 1970s. 
at the warlock shop, Lavenda met the author Simon, or so he tells us. And Prasky, continuing to run the Slavonic Orthodox Church, connected with the book thieves Hubak and Chapo and acquired what would become Simon's Necronomicon. You got me? So we got these two book thieves who are also Eastern Orthodox monks for some reason. <laughs> they stole some books. One of them was the Simon Necronomicon. They passed that on to Prasky, who passed it on to Lavenda. And that's how it gets to us. And part of the reason that Lavenda and Prasky get involved with these guys, Hubak and Chepo, is because they started their own you know, like Russian Orthodox Church, their own version, the Slavonic Orthodox Church. So it's, I guess it's Russian Orthodox in flavor is what I'm trying to say. And, and they started it when they were teenagers. Can you imagine this? It's so wild. Yeah, it's a lot as a teenager. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, yeah. Like when you're 17, what are you going to do? Join the marching band or start the Slavonic Orthodox Church? I was waiting to get out of here. I, mean, I guess group. if I got a, I was... <laughs> I got a pick. <laughs> they, they were not only anxious to get into youth group, they wanted to start their own. Oh, my God. I was waiting Thanks. to turn 18 and graduate. No offense, <laughs> mother, who doesn't listen to this, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, honestly, I, I get that. <laughs> It was, as Simon wrote in Dead Names, speaking of the Necronomicon again, a pile of loose pages written in Demotic Greek, which had been gathered in a mouse gray box and tied with green string with the word Necronomicon written on the title page. The title of Simon's history refers to a mistranslation of the time title. Simon believes that Necronomicon translates to of or pertaining to the dead. However... Uh, the title had originally been read as Dead Names, as in Necromoniker. Mm. Okay, but Dead Names sounds really cool. Yeah, it does. It's a good name for a book, but it's already written, so. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Simon had been working for Slater at the Warlock Shop. By the way, that's spelled Shoppy, you know, the fancy spelling. Ooh. Yeah, Shoppy. The Warlock Shoppy. <laughs> Sourcing and translating grimoires for him to sell. So this was his Simon's job. How do I get this job? That's what I just keep thinking know, the whole right? time you're talking. Ever since you said the the warlock shop, I've been in, really. But. <laughs> Olivia, you know what that means? We just have to start our own warlock oh, shit, shop. Right. There you go. So wait, that you could do. So one of us just has to just transcribe shit all day? Is that you, you gotta I'll learn, transcribe like- shit. That's what I wanted to kind of do. For a living, anyway. Well, so you to go. learn some obscure languages first. You would, Olivia. You would have to be like Inventory? the. You'd be the like, what's left? Yeah, but like we both have to be the front of the shop because there's only oh, two right, of us. Right. Okay, so I guess. But, but one yeah. of you is constantly trying to learn like old English. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what I'll, I guess that's <laughs> okay, what I'll be cool. doing. There you go. <laughs> Slater, who was the owner of the Warlock Shop, uh, and his partner Ed Businski opened the Warlock Shop in 1972 which they then moved to Manhattan and renamed the Magical Child. Okay, that's weird. I don't like yeah. that. That, that, that sounds like some like children of God shit, you know? It's also, yeah, no. it's also got a fancy spelling. Child is spelled with an E. He what just loves spelling that? things Stop with an it. E. <laughs> Get rid of those E's. And Magical is spelled in the uh, Crowley K with the K. I, 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 I thought you were going to say there was an E on the end of no, it. No, <laughs> Magic Hale. Oh, it's a health food store. <laughs> The, uh, the <laughs> puns are us here. So <laughs> but you liked it. <laughs> I know I did. That's why it's bad. <laughs> the store was a center for a lot of neo-pagan and ceremonial magic, and according to Simon, was central to the resolution of conflicts between and within various covens, which were popularly called the Witch Wars of the 1970s. Oh my God. The Witch Wars sounds super cool. Yeah, so this, there was all these covens <laughs> arguing over like doctrine and stuff. I know that, Olivia, you're probably like, well, Rob, the Witch Wars, we should do an episode oh. on that. But no, they're so lame. It's like no hexing or anything. Yes. It's all like debating. Is that? Yeah, it's all someone debating. just talking about texts being like, well, this means this. No, it's just no, one big this. disputation. There, yeah. <laughs> there might be hexing yeah. involved, but the hexing is based on disputation. So it's it's just like the Council of Nicaea. It's just people arguing over whether God and Jesus are the same or one came before the, you know what right. I mean? Oh, God. It's a theological argument, the Witch Wars. So... Slater saw huge potential in publishing and selling a Necronomicon, regardless of whether it was genuine. And Simon solicited two translate translators who worked on separate parts of the book without knowing the name, because he didn't want them to know they were working on this big, fancy, scary Lovecraft book. Okay. 
The book was first published by Larry Barnes, who produced 666 leather-bound editions. <laughs> I'm sorry? That's a Wait, lot of leather. Six, six, six? <laughs> yes, oh, of I'm course. 666. Because uh, he, you know, I guess marketing. Mm, yeah. And, and then 1,275 cloth-bound copies. I think just to round out close to 2,000. Barnes then distributed those to various shops out of the back of his car. Oh, God. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That's how the Book of Mormon mm. got started. It's just Joseph Smith going around in his Dodge, passing out copies of the Book of Mormon from his truck. It's like, imagine you're a cop, like, driving by, and you're like, oh, it's a drug, like, you know, and you're just like, you go to bust him, and it's just... What's in the trunk? Yeah. <laughs> just a bunch of grimoires. <laughs> that's just, that's, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's a sad day for that cop. After three editions in March 1980, the book was picked up by Avon and turned into a mass marketed paperback, as I mentioned. Some observers have noted the similarities between Peter Lavenda and Simon. So Peter Lavenda was, was supposed to have been, you know, connected up with the bookshop. And Peter Lavenda is responsible for sharing Simon's book with the world. But most people think that Peter Lavenda is Simon. He's just told us since 1977 that Simon is a different guy. Mm. Okay. Got me? Oh, okay. In Dead Names, Simon has deep insight into Lavenda's psychological state. So Simon wrote, writes a couple of books. He writes the Necronomicon, and then he writes the history of the Necronomicon, this book, Dead Names, that we've been talking about. But when he's writing Dead Names, as Simon, he's talking about Peter Lavenda as a separate guy, and all these other characters we've been talking about, the book Thieves and all this, he knows a hell of a lot about how Lavenda feels. When Lavenda broke up with Prasky, for example, Simon says Lavenda would never trust Prasky again. Well, how the hell would he know? I can't say that about any of you guys. If, if you have an argument, I can't be like, Brie will never trust Jacob again. Oh my God, I can't imagine. How would I know? Right. Right? That, that's that's seeing personal. inside. He wanted, yeah. he wanted that documented. His grudge documented. Lavenda right. <laughs> is also a noted author in his own right, having published something like a dozen books on the occult. And the line between Lavenda and Simon blurs in Dead Names. They are both working for Slater at the time the book materializes. Both are somewhat estranged from Prasky and both have a history of occult study and practice. I find this so blurry that when I started talking about the difference between them, I had to remind you that they were separate people. Okay. In an article on the book, Joseph Flatley points out that Simon's bio on Coast to Coast AM, Coast to Coast AM, for those of you who don't know, was like the original occult confessions back in the day. I don't even know if it's quite our thing. It was, it was a paranormal show. They would have UFO people on and Bigfoot people and ghost people and people like us on the AM dial. Uh, Art Bell was the host. Anyway, he interviewed Simon. And Simon's bio on that more or less exactly mirrors Peter Lavenda's bio. When Simon gave the interview to disguise his identity, he dropped the pitch of his audio. So Joseph Flatley just went back with the audio, plugged it into an audio editor, and adjusted the pitch back up. Oh my god. Right? I mean, it's easy enough to do. And he got what he says he believed to be Lavenda's voice. More directly, Lavenda is the copyright owner <laughs> for the books. And oh Alan Cabal, a former child actor and player in New York's cult scene between 78 and 90, has said that Lavenda is Simon. So a witness, a direct witness to all this. For all that, whenever anybody asks Peter Lavenda if he is Simon, he always denies it. So he really wants us to invest in this idea that the Necronomicon was translated and published by this mysterious character. It gives it, I think, a lot of extra panache, right? It's part of what made the book famous, is all this smoke and mirrors around it. Okay, so uh, we're probably tired of the history of this book. Shall we talk about what's in it? Dead people names. <laughs> the names of the dead. How to summon a, um, how to summon a squiggly monster. A Sumerian god. 
squiggly monster. <laughs> if there's not dead names in this book, then... So here's the thing. Uh, so the dead names was actually a mistranslation of the title. Oh so no, sorry, no dead names. But uh, as far as the squiggly gods, that's the other versions of the Necronomicon, but it's not the Simon Necronomicon, which doesn't really follow Lovecraft. Well, what am I here for then, Rob? You're almost here for Ghostbusters, because if you're familiar with the first Ghostbusters... Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> they are ancient Sumerian. Right. It's Gozer, right? It's yeah. ancient Sumerian God. Essentially, we're looking at... Uh, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if Dan Aykroyd got the inspiration for Gozer from this book. That's kind of crazy. Isn't it? Let's do this. So Simon openly professes two points of evidence against the authenticity of the Necronomicon. First, that there is no original, or rather that the original is inaccessible to scholars. We were given the right to translate and publish the work with as much additional and explanatory material as needed, but not the right to hold the MS up to public inspection. So there's no original book you can find. It's disappeared. Since the book was stolen, it's unclear who exactly gave Simon permission to work on the book. And he returned the manuscript soon after finishing work on it to wherever it came from. So you can't call Simon up and say, can I see the original? And no one has seen the manuscript since. In Dead Names, Simon explains that he's made a photocopy on a liquid copier and that 10 years later, the ink had completely faded off the page. How convenient. You can't see the original. I had to think about a liquid copier for a minute there. Yeah, I didn't get it either (laughs) till he said the end of the sentence and I put it together. I was like, what do you mean a liquid copier? What's the other type of copier? Our copiers, I think, are a bit more um, reliable today than they were. So this is essentially like what we would call a ditto, which uh, dittos were printed with wax and they would fade from exposure to direct light, sometimes within a matter of hours because they were printing with wax instead of ink. Why is it liquid then? Uh, I think the wax is the liquid. But I feel like ink is a better liquid. <laughs> when did we stop using typewriters? <laughs> that is so left Sorry, field. Well, the 70s were when it's the word processor, a- I think, was invented. And the word processor really took off in the 90s. So sometime in there. Jessica Fletcher <laughs> uses one on Murder, she wrote. Yeah, well, I was just thinking in the 70s, people, I think, were still... Yeah, they were still... I don't know why that mattered to me. They had copy machines, but not word processors. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, well, the liquid made me think of... Second. I I understand. Second point. Simon says the text is profoundly dangerous. There are no effective banishings for the forces invoked in Necronomicon itself. Persons of unstable mental condition or unstable emotional condition should not be allowed under any circumstances to observe one of these rituals in progress. This is definitely not a Gilbert chemistry set. Holding in my hands the mass-produced Avon Books paperback, the notion that the Necronomicon is wildly dangerous and we should keep it out of the hands of children uh, seems kind of unlikely, right? (laughs) It's It's out of the bargain bin in Walmart. It was sold uh, in Barnes & Noble, it was sold in Borders, it was sold in Walden Books. While people like Olivia and I tend to believe that Ouija boards are dangerous, and these are mass-produced for children, the manufacturers don't share our belief, which is why they print and sell them next to Monopoly boards. In the case of the Necronomicon, we have a mass-produced product created by a man who thinks that it's dangerous. Hmm. Or is at least pretending to think that. No, it makes no sense at all. Like, if you, because then I'm just like, well, yeah, then I'm just questioning his ethics. If he thinks it's so dangerous, then. It'd be like Parker Brothers saying, yeah, Rob, yeah, Olivia, Ouija boards are dangerous. As opposed to they're just a toy. Be like, thank you. You agree, finally. (laughs) Yes. But we're going to keep selling them because capitalism. I think that happens with a lot of things, though, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much what happened with Purdue Pharma. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All kinds of stuff. So anyway, capitalism, let's move on. The major pieces of the text are the testimony of the mad Arabs, or of the mad Arab himself, sorry, who is the unnamed author of the text, although Lovecraft calls him a thing. Abdul Elhazred. But in Simon, we don't name the mad Arab. The text is split into two parts, 
a series of incantations and sigils used to open the seven gates to the seven zones above the earth. And part two is a version of the Sumerian creation story. Kind of weird. The Mad Arab's testimony is actually fairly compelling. At 83, feeling on the verge of impending doom, he sits down to write the Necronomicon. His story starts when he accidentally stumbles across a desert ritual being performed by a collection of hooded figures levitating a rock. They raise a giant serpent from the earth, which causes the Mad Arab to cry out when he sees it. He's like, oh, hot damn. But, you know, the hooded figures are like, who's that? Who's that? Uh, they all turn, they notice him and they start to chase him, but he survives when these hooded figures dissolve into a putrid slime and he goes to their ritual fire and retrieves a metal amulet. My head began to ache as though a devil was pounding my skull when a shaft of moonlight struck the metal amulet, for I know now what it was. And a voice entered into my head and told me the secrets of the scene I'd witnessed in one word. Cthulhu. I heard very separate things in one incident, and I am quite confused. You especially lost me at the amulet part. I don't... Yeah, I that was a lot. Alright, I'll, I'll, I'll just break it down. Okay. We got hooded, okay. hooded guys, we got a fire, then we have a serpent that rises out of the earth. When the serpent pops up, the narrator, the mad Arab, who's like been watching this, you know, around the corner, he's like peering over the, around the corner. He's like, oh, damn. And when he says those right, words, right. the hooded figures turn and they chase after him, but then they dissolve into slime. And he's like, you know what I should do? Go check out the fire over there that they had. And he goes to the fire and that's where the amulet is. Okay, so I, I didn't miss what anything you said. I'm just, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're telling me right now. Okay. Regular references to Cthulhu and sparse mentions of Azatoth, who is called uh, Asugtoth in the book. Oh, he's got the wings, right? Azatoth is in the center of the universe. Does he have the wings? Hey. <laughs> Never mind. I think I've seen him in, I remember him from a, a okay. game. Okay, maybe. They could have given him wings. Game. He sits in the middle of the universe and uh, you can hear the piping. Oh. Yeah, I think he's, his name sounds familiar. That's so these two it, guys, anyway. these t- are Lovecraft guys and they pop up at this in this portion of the Simon Necronomicon. And they're the most Lovecraft things about the whole book. In Dead Name, Simon says this is a sign of the book's genuineness. If someone wanted to produce a fake Lovecraft grimoire, they would have been more faithful to Lovecraft's mythos. It would be more like a work of fan fiction, painstakingly drawing out each reference to the book in Lovecraft's oeuvre. So it's actually more genuine, according to Simon, because there's very little Lovecraft in it, even though the only reason it's famous is because of Lovecraft. Opportunities to connect the Necronomicon to Lovecraft's world are missed, such as that even a casual weird fiction fan would notice these emissions. Maybe even Olivia, let's find out. The Lovecraft story that makes the greatest use of the Necronomicon is probably, guesses Olivia? We've mentioned it today. Uh, Dunwator? There no, you go. Okay. Yes, oh, absolutely. God. I think I, I think I have read some of Dunwich Horror before? I feel like for your class we did or something. We worked on it last summer. What? Dunwich Horror? It was a play, Olivia. It was a, we no. did a... Was that part of our show? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Anyhow. <laughs> I didn't know that. I just thought our show was just like the one... Anyway, whatever. In Dunwich... Well, you're right. So in Dunwich... Let's ride on that. <laughs> let's ride on that great success. The Dunwich Horror, it, it, the, the Necronomicon services, uh, the book is sought by a child who is a hybrid of one of Lovecraft's outer gods, namely the blind Azatoth's omniscient partner, Yog sothoth who is the progenitor of Cthulhu. So all these old gods. In the Dunwich Horror, Yog sothoth fathers twin children by a human woman, both of whom are ultimately destroyed in order to preserve humanity, if not the fabric of space-time itself. One of the twins is more human and goes to fetch the Necronomicon from the Miskatonic University Library so that he can invoke his daddy. There are specific references to incantations to Yogg-Sothoth mentioned in the story, but the name Yogg-Sothoth makes no appearance in Simon's Necronomicon, let alone the full incantation quoted in that story. In Lovecraft's Pantheon, Yogg-Sothoth and Azatoth, the blind god and lord of all things, 
seem to be the most powerful or at least central deities. In the Necronomicon, Cthulhu gets higher billing. So what's going on here? Wait, we didn't do that in Call of Cthulhu. That was not in our show. It was a separate show. It was a separate show. We did it as a completely separate follow-up. Yeah. Well, I didn't do that. So why are you acting like I should know? You were. You you did lines for that. Oh well, if you just sent me to do with Mims, you did it with Mims. Oh well, you know, recorded thing. (laughs) I hadn't. I didn't know what I was doing those lines for. Remember? You'll read anything. (laughs) I just got (laughs) anything we send you. Yes. Put them back out. We, we, we have yeah. Olivia record all sorts of weird stuff. I'm okay, guys. Like, she I makes swear. requests I'm... for she, she requests ransom and stuff. She'll just read whatever we send her, and then we pitch it out. <laughs> I... Put the money in the bag, she says. What is this for, Rob? Don't worry about it. It's a show. Uh, yeah, I got paid for that. Sure. She's wanted on four <laughs> continents right now. Mm. Connection with kidnapping. Oh, my God. Okay, okay. so... <laughs> Instead of so, I'm saying that Yog Sothoth and all this stuff that's in Dunwichar really have to be in the Necronomicon because that's the only thing Lovecraft has said explicitly is in the Necronomicon, but it's not in Simon's Necronomicon. In fact, the hierarchy of the gods is completely ignored, and Cthulhu, which is spelled Cthulhu, K U T U L U, comes up over and over and over again. So, Cthulhu instead of these higher gods. And then Simon picks and chooses spare elements from Lovecraft, suggesting that this gets it the wrong way around. Lovecraft picked and chose spare elements from the real Necronomicon in writing his fictional texts. You got me? Yes. Yeah. First, Simon's point is well taken. Whoever wrote the Necronomicon doesn't seem to have known much about Lovecraft outside of his most famous story, The Call of Cthulhu. In this way, the cuttlefish-headed Cthulhu is like a marketing ploy which only works for a mass audience if they don't have to know a whole lot about Lovecraft's mythos to appreciate the book. Like Olivia, you know Cthulhu. But the rest of it, yeah, it's a lot. True. If you know anything about Lovecraft, you know freaking Cthulhu. So, the Necronomicon gives you plenty of Cthulhu without having to get into all that other bizarre ancient ones and eldritch gods and colors out of space. Oh, okay. Leave all that aside. Better marketing. References to Cthulhu are scattered throughout the book in such a way that just as the reader may start to forget there's any connection to Lovecraft whatsoever, it's brought gently back. It's worth mentioning here that Cthulhu is not listed among the ancient deities of Babylon, Assyria, or Sumeria, which is particularly odd, given how otherwise faithful Simon's Necronomicon is to our understanding of Sumerian mythology. You could argue that Cthulhu was a Sumerian god, but the texts naming him outside the Necronomicon just never survived. That's possible, right? So, in other words, I'm saying the Necronomicon is full of Sumerian gods plus Cthulhu. (laughs) which is weird but what if cthulhu was really a sumerian god and you know we just don't have any of those texts in my opinion though i'm really being very generous here that is really too convenient why of all the gods mentioned in the necronomicon would the most marketable and lovecrafty among them be the only one who didn't survive among the artifacts of ancient babylon (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. The simplest answer is that Cthulhu is taken from Lovecraft's pantheon and grafted into the Sumerian pantheon for marketing reasons. Simon makes a passing effort to link Cthulhu to the Sumerian god Apsu, but Apsu is a primordial father god, which is actually a better link for Lovecraft's Azatoth or Yogg-Sothoth. So Cthulhu just doesn't make any sense in this context. Is he still trying to like bring about the end of the world kind of shit? Is he still on that? Not in Simon's Necronomicon. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, is that even associated with like Sumerian like gods or goddesses? I would say that the name Cthulhu is just dropped in as one of the gods because the only reason anyone is reading Simon's Necronomicon is because of H.P. Lovecraft. And the only, and you know, the popular audience, the only thing they know about H.P. Lovecraft is Cthulhu. So you can't do this Necronomicon without referencing Cthulhu. Even though Simon really could care less about the Lovecraft mythos, really, honestly. And I feel, 
I don't know how I feel about Simon and that that whole I'm, thing. I'm I don't annoyed know. at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> to be frank, it annoys me. I don't know. Aside from the word Cthulhu, the only other major element bar- borrowed from Lovecraft's mythos is the Necronomicon itself. Lovecraft's Mad Arab also surfaces as our compiler and narrator, although Simon quibbles with Lovecraft on his name. Lovecraft's Arab is named Al-Hazred, but Simon points out that such a name would make no sense in Arabic, and so Simon's Mad Arab is nameless. I Well, at least I feel like, I don't know, call me crazy, but trying to name him feels m- better than just calling him the the Mad Arab, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That seems a little rough, Simon. I don't know. Give the man a name. Yeah. Nevertheless, we're left with the weird situation that if Simon's Necronomicon is what it claims to be, then the weird fiction writer Lovecraft somehow knew about this very obscure book enough to incorporate several elements from it into his stories, making up some others as needed. The making up of details is not so strange as the knowledge of the book at all. (laughs) Keep in mind, because, right, Simon is the first person to let anyone know that this exists, right? But Lovecraft would have also had this very secret information. Since Lovecraft's death, everyone has believed the Necronomicon was entirely his invention, including scholars of ancient civilizations. So there is no one on God's green earth who has happened across this book except for Simon and H.P. Lovecraft. Hmm. Yeah, maybe Peter Lavenda who is also Simon. But let's get back to the Arab story. After his encounter with the sorcerers, oh, those guys who steal books, they they totally, those those guys too. After his encounter with the sorcerers, sir, sorcerers, my guys with the fire and the serpent, and so we're back to the mad Arab and what his life is. Yeah, you with me? Mm-hmm. So he acquires the amulet. We left off with the amulet. And then he goes on an epic quest and becomes uh, an occult adept in his own right. Henceforth from that fateful night in the mountains of Masu, I wandered about in the countryside in search of the key to the secret knowledge that had been given me. And soon, I came to understand many things of which before I had no knowledge, except perhaps in dreams. The friends of my youth deserted me, and I them. When I was seven years gone from my family, I learned that they had all died of their own hand for reasons no one was able to tell me. Their flocks had later been slain as victims of some strange epidemic. My books have lost light and settle upon their shelves like animals fallen asleep or dead. I am sickened by what voices I hear now, as though the voices of my family left behind me so many years ago that it is not possible to conceive what they are about. Did I not understand of their untimely, unnatural death? Can the demons who wait without take on viciously the human voices of my parents, my brother, my sister? Dog-faced demons approach the circumference of my sanctuary. Strange lines appear carved on my door and walls, and the light from the window grows increasing dim. The wind has risen. The dark waters stir. I want to pause quickly here to say that while I am seriously criticizing Simon's claims about the origins of the Necronomicon, and I'm definitely definitely not the first to do so, I do like some sections of the book, uh, and I liked much of what I read in Dead Names. They're they're pretty good stories. That having been said, in the second part of his testimony, the Mad Arab prophesizes the dawning or prophecies the dawning of a new age when the body of Tiamat, ancient Sumerian mother of the gods whose body forms the fabric of space, shall be joined together again. Explain. Wait, back back that sentence back up when you got to her again. So Tiamat is ki- is murdered, right? In in yeah. Sumerian lore, and her body forms yeah. the fabric of space, so she'll exactly. sort of be revived, I, I guess. What? But what happened to everything else? It, a new age. <laughs> it would just be gone. It would just be her. I guess. Yeah, right. Where would we be? We would be gone. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I, uh. If we would know more of the outside with a capital O, we should call on the Scorpion Man, capital Scorpion, capital Man, a monster fashioned by Tiamat in the earliest days of being. 
but beware of his female companion. So if we want to know, if you want to know more about this, Brie, you've got to seek out the scorpion man, but watch out for the lady that he hangs out with. Okay. Also, while you're trying to seek out the scorpion man, be wary of the warlike cult of the dragon, whose members are another race than humanity, a race of the stars. Sounds a little this bit like serpent people. starting to sound like some Dragon Age shit. Yeah. I'm not yeah, going to Yeah, I was about lie. to say, so first I got to worry about a probably really hot lady. <laughs> and now I have to worry about a cult that a are cult some, of dragon, some dragon men. What? Hot, what? <laughs> of this from the stars? Yeah, that's that's straight out of that's dragon an Age. RPG. <laughs> yes, that is... This is, I feel like, We're something I have done right now. Yeah. in a Dragon Age game. The cult worships the giant cow, who in their rights oh. become as cows, and it is disgusting to see, says the Mad Arab. Wait, they don't Would worship it... dragons? <laughs> what do you mean they become cows? They are the cult of the dragon, of the race of the stars. Oh, I'm sorry, There's a se- this is a separate cult. There are two cults. The second cult oh, worships okay. the giant cow and become cows, and it's disgusting. Oh. What? When did wait? Why is it? When did they become the cows? Probably while you're looking at that hot chick next to Scorpion Man. I do love cows. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I do too. Why is it gross? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Is it like a werewolf transformation? They just break all their bones, tear their skin apart, and then they just poof out some cows. Listen, I'm just telling you what Simon told me. I need answers, <laughs> okay, Rob. Simon. Simon's a little rude sometimes. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> In the end, certain doom arrives at the Arab's doorstep, and it sounds like his relatives, dead by their own hand so many years ago. So all of his relatives have committed suicide, and their ghosts are haunting him as he's writing this book. Wait. Okay. Okay. That's pretty badass. Those are your dead names. Oh. What? Okay. (laughs) What a roller coaster. Right? (laughs) It's not the episode to do after I hit my head. (laughs) I'm a little lost, but I'm okay. I think it's perfect. I think you're in the perfect mode for this. True. (laughs) Sigils and incantations do not make for great podcasting. So we're going to go ahead and skip the seven gates and go right on to the creation story. Unless you guys want to hear me do incantations and draw things for a while. I really personally (laughs) love love that, Rob. I love a good creation story. Okay. All right. Let's move on. Okay. Well, Brie, I'll do it for you off off the off the air. There you go. Thank you, Rob. Comparing the Necronomicon's mythology with what we know of ancient Sumerian mythology, it's pretty well on the mark. This doesn't mean that Simon is peddling Sumerian mythology as a unique creation of the Necronomicon. He owns that much of the Necronomicon is just Sumerian myth regurgitated. This is intentional. So, what is the Sumerian creation story? Do you know this, Brie? Do you know you seem to know some things about Tiamat. Yeah. The- so, um. Yeah, in a lot of like my history classes, um, sh- this th- it actually gets brought up. We read the document on it, and um, it's a part of like the curriculum. Cool, it's really cool. I don't, I don't know if I remember it. I got you bit by bit. I got you. Um, though, but we do just make approving sounds as I say this. So it begins okay. with the primordial sea, which is split into two parts: the Apsu and Tiamat. Apsu is male, Tiamat female. Apsu is freshwater, Tiamat is saltwater. Apsu and Tiamat mate to produce what the Necronomicon calls the Elder Gods, beginning with Enlil and Enki, but also their next generation, including Ishtar, Arishkigal, Nergal, and Marduk. If you listen to our episode on aliens, what was that, Olivia? Do you remember that we did? Did you say Nargal? Uh, Nergal, Nergal, the underworld god. Yeah. That's a Warhammer thing, right, Bree? So... But, well, that's because Warhammer pulls from a lot of stuff. That's what I was just, huh, okay, yeah. sorry, anyway. So we did the Doomsday, we did Alien Doomsday, Yeah. and we covered all these guys. So go back and listen to that if you haven't. It's a nice companion piece to our Necronomicon here, oddly, oddly, because so much of this is about ancient Sumeria, and so much of that Alien Doomsday is about Sumeria. And in many ways, neither thing has anything to do with Sumeria. Apsu conspires to kill the younger gods, but warned by their mother, they kill him instead. Tiamat, who had helped her children, now turns on them and creates 11 monsters to defeat them. This is a little bit like Norse mythology, too, isn't it, Brie? Um, a little bit. Certain aspects, yes. Yeah. She solicits the god Chingu uh, as her champion, the Elder Gods turn to Marduk, patron of Babylon, to save them. Yeah. This is Sorry. What? You like Marduk? Oh, yeah. It's getting, it's getting, it's getting cool. good now. <laughs> <laughs> 
this part of the story is a bit variable. We get the story via Babylonian sources. So Marduk is the champion, but different regions with different patron gods would plug their god into the role of patron, a champion in this, at this moment in the story. The Necronomicon doesn't bother with these details, but insofar as it professes to be a mythological text in its own right, it wouldn't bother with these details. This is more historiography than mythology. So Marduk defeats the monsters and kills his grandmother Tiamat using her body to form, as as Brie has been saying, the created world as we know it, which we can't wake up because we're in it. Uh, Yes. (laughs) uh, Marduk slays Chingu and uses the god's blood to form us. So ends the creation story. But the Necronomicon goes on to include a retelling of the ancient poem about Inanna's or Ishtar's descent into the underworld, apropos of... Nothing, really. It's just like a separate thing. Let's do this now. She goes to visit her older sister, goddess of the underworld, Arishkigal. She is stripped of her protecting jewelry and clothing and approaches her sister's throne naked, and her sister has her killed and strung up on the spot. Inanna's servant brings news of her murder to her father, Enki, and he sends two demons to torture Arishkigal and retrieve her. The demons do their work, and Arishkigal gives her sister's corpse to them, They give her the food and water of life, and she is revived. Although this isn't as clear in the Necronomicon, Inanna must send her sister a replacement for herself and chooses her lover, Dumuzi, who is the only one of her inner circle, not dressed in mourning for her passing. You got me? So after Inanna's revived, Arishkigal, her sister's like, okay, so fine, I gave you up. You need to send me some fresh meat. And uh, Inanna looks around and and uh, she says, well, that guy, he doesn't uh, seem sad enough that I'm dead. He can go. I see. That's funny. The Necronom makes reference to Demuzi replacing Inanna, but the story of how and why is completely left out. The inclusion of so much Sumerian mythology near the end of the text speaks to its frame of reference and also its influence. The Necronomicon has imagined an ancient Sumerian grimoire and used Lovecraftian marketing to sell it to a mass audience. Let me repeat this again, because this is really the whole moral of the story here. The Necronomicon is basically an imagined version of an ancient Sumerian grimoire based more or less faithfully on what we know of Sumerian mythology. And for whatever reason, it is just grafted Lovecraft onto the cover and some of the framing in order to make it more marketable to more people. Uh, It's kind of weird, but like, I also get it, but I also just don't kind of like the way Simon did it. I don't (laughs) know. I'm I'm disappointed. It makes me feel weird. Maybe for like copyright reason, but it's also not copy. Like I don't well, know because it's, it's weird. ancient Sumerian myth. It nothing could be more no, out of copyright. <laughs> I guess not that. I guess I'm thinking like Cthulhu. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like there's certain things where it's like, oh Simon, are you gonna take that and then say Lovecraft who? Like I don't know. I don't think it's exactly what Lovecraft had intended because he claims it's real. Lovecraft would not have been okay with the hoaxing aspects of this. The spells and sigils and incantations are all based on Sumerian sources. Clearly, Simon has a passion for Sumerian lore. The ma- yeah, why doesn't he just write a Sumerian write books book? on Sumerian yeah. lore? Yeah, I don't think it would be as appealing. I disagree. <laughs> I guess was it like Lovecraft was still hot then, right? You were like, it was still yeah. Like a- Lovecraft, I okay. think, has never stopped being hot. He's never as hot That's as Poe, but Lovecraft is definitely has more name Damn. recognition than. Erishkigal. The Sumerians are sexy. What's what's wrong? I don't get it. Sumerians are sexy. You heard it here. You heard it here from me. The mad mad Arab Cthulhu and the name Necronomicon have all simply been included to update, syncretize, and ultimately sell this Sumerian-inspired text. There's even a chart of comparisons in the text linking Lovecraft's entities to Sumerian gods. And here is where uh, I can go get around to praising the Necronomicon because, as I said earlier, it is likely the inspiration for one of my personal favorite movies, Ghostbusters. As a child, I was obsessed. Obsessed. That makes a lot of sense, though. (laughs) Right? I wasn't allowed to watch the movie, though, because, like, Dan Aykroyd has sex with a ghost and, like... (laughs) Yeah, that movie... It's a pretty sexy movie. 
is kind of intense. I remember watching it when I was a kid and didn't really get it. I watched it earlier than I watched most other things because I also didn't really like horror movies as a kid. But Ghostbusters, I watched pretty young. But my parents, (laughs) they they made me wait. There was a cartoon, though, in the 80s, which was incredible. Excellent cartoon. And that's how I got obsessed with them. The title characters uh, of Ghostbusters, to remind everyone, battle an ancient Sumerian god named Gozer on the roof of an occult-inspired skyscraper and then in the form of a giant marshmallow man. So Gozer takes two forms. Gozer is ushered into our realm in part by the efforts of a cross-dimensional gatekeeper named Zool, who possesses Sigourney Weaver's character Dana's refrigerator and then her body. It's hilarious. It's such a funny movie. Dan Aykroyd, who wrote the movie with Harold Ramis, is known for his enthusiasm for all things paranormal. Dan Aykroyd's family, after all, had a history of uh, paranormal investigation and spiritualism. Ghostbusters both satirizes and celebrates ideas popularized by the Necronomicon. Whether or not Aykroyd actually read any of Simon's book, the connections between his movie and the Necronomicon suggest the degree to which Simon's ideas had filtered into the culture. No matter what we want to say about the book's authenticity, Simon did succeed at popularizing a fairly faithful articulation of Sumerian mythology in a mass market paperback. Can you imagine like people buying this, like people buy romance novels, buying Sumerian myth? Personally, I can. (laughs) But for the rest of us, Brie, this is an amazing accomplishment. Yeah. Honestly, there's not much else I can definitely say about the Necronomicon. I believe it is possible some sections of the book may have been translated from some lost manuscript, but the fact that the manuscript is lost and there is no other correlating documentation for the text is deeply suspicious. And so it seems to me that Simon, possibly Peter Lavenda, took some popular elements of Lovecraft lore and grafted them on top of a Sumerian grimoire that Simon had either invented or discovered. If the text was discovered, I doubt that it's authentically Sumerian, but rather the work of a like-minded individual in the neo-pagan revival, one of these witch war folks. We have to remember that going back long before Aleister Crowley, occultists have felt free to create their own inspired texts. Crowley had Ivos, Blavatsky had her ascended masters, Emma Harding Britton had the Chevalier, and on and on. Gerald Gardner's Book of Shadows is famously suspect. Gardner claimed it came from a secret coven of witches, but never produced any evidence of this coven. But Gardner's texts like Crowley's Book of the Law or Blavatsky's Secret Doctrine is influential and too many inspirational. The Necronomicon need be nothing more or less than another occult text written in this tradition with intentionally murky origins. Well, that's my conclusion. You two seem to be a, a bit grimmer on the Necronomicon than I am. I'm willing to let it pass just because I, I think that it does follow these traditions. But I, I agree with you that it is far less honest about its origins. Blavatsky said, my ascended masters, help me write the secret doctrine. And Crowley said, Ivas, help me write the book of the law. Gerald Gardner, I think, was a bit shadier, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. So he's probably more like Gerald Gardner. Yeah, I don't, I guess I'm not, oh God. Is it okay to say I have more of a problem with Simon than the actual thing he wrote? That's me, that's what I'm, that's my issue. Because it's kind of like, well, I guess I can't hate on it, but. Yeah, you can. I just want to hate on him a little, just like, just a little, just a, you know. A smidge. Uh, a smidge. Yeah. Just a titch. I was interested. The book was fu- a fun read and interesting. And I learned a lot about Sumerian culture and mythology just working on this project. So I think that's why I'm giving him some credit there. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have expressed much interest in the ins and outs of Arishkigal and her in- engagement with Ishtar under the earth. You know what I mean? Like, that's a story I wouldn't have come across but for this book. But it's a cool story and it's cool to know that stuff, you know? I guess that's kind of that's what I mean by like I can't hate on the the material even though I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Olivia. Though, like the book, fine, whatever. I mean, you could have just written something without tagging Lovecraft on it. I think that's kind of the the issue. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't like how he handled the. I don't. I don't know. I just don't like how he handled the book that he created. I guess. 
feel like I need to rewatch The Evil Dead too, because now I'm like, it, literally, I think all it did was raise the dead. So I'm like, like it just raises an army of the dead. So I'm like, what is? Does that even have anything to do with? It's more so taking on like the actual like dead names. Like, I guess that's where title. people. Maybe that's where that is from, though, when people like use it in that sense. Other than you know being a pull from. Lovecraft, they kind of take it for like the the misnomer rather than the actual the actual like title and book. Our sources today included the Necronomicon, edited and with an introduction by Simon. Dead names: The Dark History of the Necronomicon, also by Simon. The Cult of Cthulhu, Real Prayer for a Fake fe- Tentacle, <laughs> by Joseph L. Flatley. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a title. Connie Lippert's Lovecraft's Grimoires, Intertextuality on the Necronomicon, and John Engel's Cults of Lovecraft. All right, Olivia, bring us on home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. I want to thank Andrew Mims and Sean Priest for doing the voices of the Mad Arab and Simon for us today. And I want to thank our literal sisters for another lovely exchange on things occult. Bree Literal, our metallurgic prophet. Bye, guys. And Olivia Literal, Grand Master of the Order. Goodbye. Me, my name is Rob C. Thompson. Thank you all for joining us for this episode on the Necronomicon. Next time, we are going to... See, our chronology is a bit off, i got to be honest, this season, just because I'm trying to line up themes. Uh, So we're going to go back in time a little bit and uh, go to Atlantis. So we're going to cover a man named Howard, a writer in Lovecraft's circle who invented Conan the Barbarian and invented reptilians. What? Yes, fun. So that's next here on Occult Confessions.